This is the Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm Amit Ghosh, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Today's topic for discussion is COVID Activity Rehab Program. It's also called CARP. Today we are joined by Dr. Greg Vanish Kosharan from the Division of Preventive Occupational and Aerospace Medicine. Thank you for joining us, Greg. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. We are in the midst of the COVID pandemic, but we are seeing a second wave of activity coming up. And patients who are recovering from COVID are having what is called the COVID long hauler syndrome. But I'm glad to have you here to discuss about our CARP program. But before I go that, I would like to kind of ask you some of the findings that you have uncovered on the way as to what is this post-COVID syndrome that your team is looking into? Can you kindly discuss about that? Sure, absolutely. And again, thank you so much for having me and giving me the time to address this issue that I think is, like you said, a second wave, uh, the second chapter in the COVID story. We got a chance to start working with patients who were recovering from COVID from the very get-go as they came out of the ICU in the hospital. And pretty much immediately, we were seeing that patients were having difficulties getting back to their normal life in a way that we really hadn't seen much before. We had anticipated that patients would just be able to bounce back fairly quickly, but lo and behold, patients were complaining of things like shortness of breath and fatigue, sometimes lasting for several weeks after their infection. And as more and more patients began to present with these problems, we decided to put together a program that would help address their needs, a multidisciplinary team that could help them recover and get better. And so by this point, uh, we've seen a, a couple hundred patients uh, with post-COVID syndrome, as we call it here. And I would say that the most common symptoms that we hear about, at least with our population here at the Mayo Clinic, is first uh, fatigue. And it's not like any normal fatigue. You know, when people say, I'm tired, most of the times you think about, okay, that feeling you get when you have a bad night of sleep or you've overdone it at the gym or something like that. But this is really just profound fatigue. So for example, I'll have patients state that they'll do something as simple as go out for checking their mail or doing some light house chores around the home. And this will often result in them needing to take a nap for three to four hours or rest in bed the next day. So it's quite debilitating. The second symptom that we see frequently is shortness of breath, which would make sense as this is a respiratory illness. And this can actually last for weeks to months at a time and even occur at rest. The next symptom that we hear the most about that is only lately, I think, getting a lot of uh, attention is the brain fog piece. Patients are reporting difficulties with cognition, and that mainly comes up with problems like multitasking or performing complex tasks at the usual rate. And this often shows up when a patient tries to get back to work. And then finally, we see a lot, unfortunately, of depression, anxiety, and even symptoms that seem very similar to post-traumatic stress disorder. When I was reading the literature, it says that one in 10 patients could be having COVID long hauler syndrome. What's your experience here at Mayo? 
this is a question that I get quite a bit. How often is this going to occur? How many people should we expect to see? Initially, this was really hard to answer because the research that was out there looked at very specialized populations. So for example, there was a study in Italy that showed almost 80% of patients were experiencing symptoms two months out. But on the flip side, there was another study in London that showed only about 10% were experiencing symptoms um, one month out from their infection. And what we have seen looking at our own data here at Mayo with some of the patients that we've worked with, is, which is several thousands, we are currently estimating that about 10 to 15% of patients will be suffering from post-COVID syndrome. So not a small amount. What I definitely can say is that this is not a rare condition. It's not a one-off type of situation and both patients and providers should be ready to to tackle this new challenge. I mean, thinking about the millions of patients who've been affected or afflicted by COVID, that could be a huge epidemic of patients that we could be seeing. But my understanding is that you don't have to be in ICU or the very severely, be very severely ill with COVID to have the syndrome. You could be having mild to moderate COVID symptoms not amounting to an ICU admission, and you could still have this long-drawn post-holler syndrome. Are you seeing the same phenomenon? Yes, and unfortunately, you know, when post-COVID syndrome first came about, we thought naturally that the risk factors associated with poor outcomes acutely would be the same. Advanced age, uh, several medical comorbidities, deconditioning going into the the acute infection, but we actually have not seen that in our population with CARP. 70% or so of our patients in CARP actually were not hospitalized, even less involved in the ICU and intubated. Only about a quarter of our patients have actually had any form of pre-existing respiratory or cardiovascular condition. Same as well for psychiatric conditions. And about Ooh, less than 10% have any form of previous problems with fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue, which seems to be a very similar entity. So the, the important thing to take away from that is that anybody really can get this. And coming down with post-COVID syndrome is not some sort of statement about a person's pre-existing medical condition. Sure, we've had folks who are more sedentary and less healthy in their lives, but we've also had very accomplished athletes and marathon runners and professional military pilots come down with this syndrome. Is there anything in the presentation or in the past history that could suggest that they could have this kind of post holler or what I'm hearing you say that regardless, it's hard to predict who's going to be in this situation? Right now, I would say it's hard to predict, unfortunately. We haven't found a canary, so to speak, of risk factor. And you're also mentioning this variability of symptoms. I mean, you could have fatigue, but it could fluctuate from day to day, time to time. Is that a pattern that one could be expecting in these patients? Or is it constant debilitating fatigue progressing throughout the day? Or there could be a mixture of symptoms that each patient could have. One day they're feeling well, the next day they're feeling really fatigued. What, does, what are the kind of symptoms patients are coming with? I would definitely say that the fluctuating type of symptom pattern is what we see the most. And this is actually what gets patients in quite a bit of trouble, unfortunately, and may delay recovery. What we see actually is that patients will get into this vicious cycle 
with their symptoms and function. So for a lot of reasons, patients are desiring to get back to their normal life, whether it be stress related to their condition or wanting to get back to the workforce. And they've been resting, and so they might have a good day where they feel better. And so this will lead to them trying to do something that may be a little bit too much early on. So for example, I had an individual who said that he wasn't working at all or walking at all, and then he decided to go for like a five-mile jog when he felt better. And this results in patients experiencing a significant flare of their symptoms. And as we discussed earlier with the fatigue, this can sometimes put someone down and out for a couple of days. That in turn leads to further deconditioning, further loss of function, and then more stress and the desire to get back. And so they get into this cycle. This is not just anecdotal evidence as well. We have seen this similarly with chronic fatigue patients. Um, and patients who are suffering from uh, fibromyalgia, it's referred to in some studies as post-exertional malaise. And so the idea of getting no pain, no gain to get back to work and back to function does not really work well with these symptoms. So what I'm hearing you, Greg, is that a common sense approach of just let's get to it and life will be as normal as usual and it can happen at the snap of a finger, that's probably not going to work. When the patient comes in, with similar symptoms in your clinic, if you were to give an advice to me and I have to set up a clinic like this somewhere else, what kind of resources do I need to both for the intake of the patient and, and then we'll go into the details of are there different levels of management of these patients? That's a great question. I would say that the most important resource when it comes to patients suffering from this condition is time. If there's one constant that I have seen across all patients suffering from post-COVID syndrome, it's that they have felt abandoned and unfortunately not well heard. And so when we do our intakes here for patients, it can sometimes take up to an hour, which I know is quite difficult to manage, especially in a primary care uh, situation. But anything that can be done to help with giving patients more time to share their symptoms, their story, and how they feel is very important. I find that just letting them express their feelings and what they've been going through can be very therapeutic. After that, after hearing the story, the first step in treatment typically involves ruling out other conditions that can come with COVID. It's important to remember that COVID doesn't happen in a bubble, unfortunately, and we have seen that there can be some very serious sequelae from COVID-19 infection, such as thromboembolic events, particularly pulmonary embolism, other infections on top of this as well. In fact, there have been some studies showing that patients in their first 60 days following discharge, about 10% of those will actually go on to have fatal outcomes after coming out of the ICU. So things can go quickly wrong in the post-acute setting. So having enough resources to perform basic labs, imaging, and a physical examination are important. After that acute phase, it's more about helping patients cope with their ongoing symptoms and rehabilitate in an appropriate fashion. And so for that, we here at Mayo have a, are very fortunate to have a work rehab center that is good at helping patients understanding more about how to properly pace their activity. Again, no pain, no gain, graded exercise or exercise in general, that is the wrong way to go about reconditioning. It's a very slow and consistent approach that patients often have a hard time to understand. And so having a, a physical therapy and the occupational therapy program that can support patients through this process is crucial. I completely agree with you, Greg, about the listening 
carefully because I've, because I've seen a lot of Facebook groups and social groups, patients uh, with post-COVID who are not feeling heard and they are sharing their symptoms and getting to share some of the stories of the other patients in various different locations and countries. I think that that group itself has helped us understand that we have to be much better listeners. And the analysis part of it, I agree, that's kind of scary mm-hmm. that uh, these patients could be seeing their internist and yet there could be some serious diseases lurking there. From the history, are you selecting which patients would need selective more ex- evaluations for thrombosis or cardiac or pulmonary workup? Or, so you're doing a very thorough medical evaluation. Exactly. We all base it on the history. Of course, we do do some typical lab work like a CBC and a CMP, checking for signs of ongoing inflammation. One thing that we have a very low threshold for doing is ordering follow-up studies to check for a possible pulmonary embolism. And that comes from collaboration with our colleagues in pulmonary medicine who assist us quite a bit with this. And of course, as we all know, that could include things like D-dimers and CT angiograms. And the way we start that process is by asking the usual questions about lower extremity swelling, especially one-sided, prolonged mobility, new shortness of breath that's worsening, and so forth. What are the tests you're doing for deconditioning? Are we going to do this V2 max or is just walking six-minute walk? Uh, the V2 max may not be there, but six-minute walk would be easily duplicated. Definitely, we are doing the six-minute walk distance, and we're also compare that with grip strength testing. And that is a test that a lot of PT and OT groups are capable of doing easily. When we have this kind of patients, uh, the PT and OT, is it like a six weeks schedule or uh, less or more than six weeks? Or what are the, or it depends on where they are in their time course? I would say it depends on where they are in their time course, but most of our patients actually proceed with about a two to three month course of the physical therapy. We, of course, have been challenged with the pandemic surges that have come and gone. And so giving a completely specific estimate at this point is difficult, but I would say about two to three months. It is a slower pace than what we would normally associate with like, let's say a knee strain or an ankle injury. Have you have some happy stories to share that somebody has come in, someone you've put through this program and you're seeing uh, now significant benefit at the end of two or three months, or is it too early to get those results? Absolutely. I'm happy to say that, first of all, everyone does seem to be following a positive trajectory. It's always slower than they want, but definitely following a positive trajectory. And yes, we have had folks who have gone back from essentially complete debilitation all the way back to return to normal life and normal work, even full duty. Of those patients that have been able to have those successful outcomes, we've been able to intervene sooner than later, typically within about 30 days of their infection. So that brings to my last question is, your advice to physicians and patients, what should be the time period? Four weeks after they recover from COVID or longer than that, when should they be seeing their doctors to get the best care? Great question. We know from our studies that most cases of COVID-19 will improve over about two to three weeks. And so I would say that if you are not following a positive trajectory of getting better in that third to fourth week, that's a time to start reaching out to your personal physician or medical provider for assistance. 
Uh, the sooner that we can initiate care and help you along with the process, the more likely it is that you're going to be able to recover back to full duty. And also don't be afraid to be your own advocate. There is so much new that we are learning about this condition that not everyone is as informed about it as we want them to be. And so if the answer you get from your personal provider is, I don't know what to do, don't be afraid to seek out other help. There are several clinics around the country that are specializing in this, including Mayo. There is help out there for you. So from the CARP, uh, have you produced any patient education videos that somebody with actively going through COVID can even see? I would say that that is the, the next iteration of our efforts here at Mayo Clinic. Now that we have seen more and more folks come down with this condition and that this is going to be something that we're going to have to face on a national level, the clinic has been reorganizing our efforts to help treat patients who are suffering from prolonged COVID symptoms. This includes involving my colleagues in internal medicine and the chronic fatigue clinic, as well as developing online educational materials that we hope to have in the near future that can help reach patients and help them start this process for recovery even sooner. So from Greg, what I'm hearing is we are just at the start of this long hauler. So it's most likely that everybody's practice who's practicing in internal medicine or any other specialties, you're going to see a lot of these patients. What would be your advice to leaders of hospitals uh, thinking ahead of developing a similar clinic in their institution? You know, as I mentioned earlier, the, the real key when taking care of patients with post-COVID syndrome is that time element. And it's easy to say that, yes, uh, organizations should start taking care of these patients and be ready for them. But when it comes down to the logistics of that, that is quite labor intensive and it takes time and a schedule to do this, person power, uh, logistical support on the background, IT support, also a significant amount of support from our colleagues in mental health as well. So it's important for organizations to develop a multidisciplinary team that actually has the ability to spend the required time with these patients in order to truly meet their needs. And that's gonna take some thinking outside of the box, especially as we think about how does this relate to reimbursement with insurance? Because that is an inevitable part of healthcare as well. And some challenges that we have faced here at the clinic as well, too, in regards to that. But that should also be part of the discussion. How do we get patients coverage for ongoing care related to COVID? That's a great point. Looks like it's, it is a new service line which is going to develop and has already developed in many institutions. Just giving an idea about how did we disseminate this information about the CARP clinic? How are we making sure that everybody understands what kind of resources they have? Is there some kind of a discussion of that level? There is a discussion at that. And in fact, I've got meetings this afternoon on further education, but it's been fairly grassroots from the start. When this whole program started, my first method of communication was email, just reaching out to my colleagues in pulmonary medicine and physical medicine and rehab. And sometimes that's what it takes to get things rolling for our patients. But now activities like this podcast, as well as some of the information that we have on Ask Mayo Expert that will be updated, as well as other videos that we hope to put out here in the new future, will start this process of further educating our colleagues. Any last minute Comments, uh, Greg, before I wrap up? No, I, I think uh, I just appreciate the opportunity to, to speak about this condition. I, like I said, it's going to be a challenge that we're all going to face as providers, as uh, citizens, and as a country going forward. 
And again, for the patients out there who may be suffering from this, don't be afraid to ask for help. The sooner the better, and we're here for you. I hear a message and language of hope in Dr. Greg Grant's podcast today, and there's a lot of help. And together, we are going to overcome this new hurdle of post-COVID hollow syndrome. If you've enjoyed the Mayo Clinic podcast, please subscribe, stay healthy, and I will see you back next week. Thank you.